All right. Hello, everyone, and uh, welcome to the service this morning. And I'm excited to be bringing the word. We're in a sermon series called The Gifts of Crisis. And we're going to explore this morning the gift of the priesthood of all believers. Something that I think God is really doing in this season with his church. To get into it, I want to read to you a quote by Viktor Frankl. Viktor Frankl survived the Holocaust and spent the rest of his life exploring the idea of suffering and darkness. And he wrote a Pulitzer Prize winning book called Man's Search for Meaning. In it, he writes this, In some ways, suffering ceases to be suffering at the moment it finds a meaning such as the meaning of sacrifice. So the question we might want to ask in this season is, how can God take this season of suffering and move us into a posture of sacrifice so that we might shape the world for the better and help serve to move the history of the church forward? You see, as Christians, we believe in history. Now, that might seem weird because that's a subject in school, but actually, history is determined by whether or not you believe we are coming from somewhere in the middle of a story and headed towards something else. And so this morning, I want to read to you a scripture that served to move the church forward in a significant way, in a significant time in history that still affects us. And then I want to explore together how maybe God is using this same text and trying to highlight and deepen its meaning for us today as a church. So if you would turn in your scripture or you can follow along on the screen to 1 Peter chapter 2 and we're going to read verses 1 through 12. Before we do, let's pray together. Lord Jesus, I pray that you would come in spirit to inform and to encourage, to convict, and to teach. Lord, would you make us your people this morning through the reading of your word. We pray for all those who are hurting in need of comfort this morning, Lord, that you would come to them, minister to them, and use us as the body of Christ to care for them. In your name we pray, Lord Jesus. Amen. 1 Peter chapter 2. Therefore, rid yourselves of all malice and all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander of every kind. Like newborn babies crave spiritual, pure spiritual milk, so that by it you may grow up in your salvation. Now that you have tasted that the Lord is good. As you come to him, the living stone, rejected by humans, but chosen by God and precious to him, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For in Scripture it says, See, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and precious cornerstone, and the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. 
Now to you who believe, the stone is precious. But to those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. And a stone that causes people to stumble and a rock that makes them fall. They stumble because they disobey the message, which is also what they are destined for. But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness and into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. This is a picture of the church that Jesus desires. This is a picture of the new temple that God, through Jesus, is building. And in the first temple, there were stones. And in those stones, there were carvings. There were carvings of trees, and they bore pomegranate fruits and abundant fruits. And there were also images of basins and water basins. And those basins represented the sea and all of life. And those, those carvings upon these large stones within the temple were there to remind the people that had gathered to worship in the temple of the Garden of Eden. You see, the first temple did not have walls. It was the garden place. In Scripture, it says it's a walled garden where Adam and Eve were there as the first priest and priestess in the temple. And they walked the garden and they were God's intercessor between him and all of creation. Well, after Genesis 3 and the fall, there needed to be new forms and expressions of the temple. And so first we see tabernacle and then we see uh, the first temple And then that first temple is destroyed, and then there's a second temple that's created. And then eventually Herod brings forth a new temple in Jerusalem. And one day Jesus is walking by with some country boys, his disciples, who had never been to the big city before. And there they are admiring this big temple that was built by Herod, and they say this, As Jesus was leaving the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what massive stones, what a magnificent building. You see, the disciples were so impressed by this structure that was there, bigger than anything that they had ever seen before. But Jesus totally blows their mind when he says, Do you see all these great buildings? Not one stone here will be left on another. Every one of them will be 
thrown down. You see, the temple had become compromised. It wasn't the way that God wanted it to be. The picture of that that we get time and time again in Scripture, it's in all four of the Gospels and maybe twice in John, is the picture of Jesus going to the temple and declaring that this place is a den of robbers and I desire it to be a house of prayer. But we see that not only does the temple come down when Jesus is crucified and the curtain ripped open, but in the New Testament as the Holy Spirit descends on the New Testament church in Acts There's a new temple that's being created and Stephen articulates it so well when he is put on trial and being persecuted. He says this, The Most High does not live in houses made by human hands. See, what Stephen is saying is that the Spirit of God has moved out of the traditional temple and into the people of God, the New Testament church. We still struggle with this idea even today. If you were asked, where do you go to church? You would say St. Andrew's. You wouldn't say, I am the church. You see, there's this distinction in our minds of the church over there on the corner versus this picture that Peter is giving us of living stones built on the cornerstone. The cornerstone, the rejected Jesus Christ who was crucified on our behalf, resurrected, and then made it possible as the most critical building block in the spiritual house of God that is being built. And we get to be one of those stones that is being built into a spiritual house. This was an idea that when Martin Luther, as a Catholic monk, read the scriptures, he looked at the church that he was a part of and what the scriptures were describing, and he said, there is something wrong here, and it sparked a reformation. Martin Luther puts it this way. He says this, It has been devised that the Pope, bishops, Priests and monks are called the spiritual estate, but lords, artificers, and peasants are the temporal estate, which is a very fine hypocrisy. You see, what he's saying here is that the popes and the spiritual leaders of the Catholic Church of his time were being described as the spiritual ones, and the everyday ordinary workers And even people of nobility were seen as the ordinary people, the non-spiritual people. And you needed to get a spiritual person if you wanted to have relationship with God. You see, the temple had adjusted not to one specific place, but these religious leaders who are masquerading around as the priesthood of all believers that in which they said that they had some special consecration, special holiness that allowed them to do things that the everyday, ordinary, believing person who was baptized was unable to do. Luther continues, But let no one be made afraid by this hypocrisy. 
And for this reason, that all Christians are truly of the spiritual estate. And there is no difference among them except for the office they occupy. As St. Paul says, we are one body through each member, though each member does its work to serve the others. This is because we have one baptism, one gospel, one faith, and all Christians are alike for baptism and gospel and faith. These alone make spiritual and Christian people. We all have access to this great declaration of authority in the kingdom of God that we are actually a priesthood just like Adam and Eve were the first priest and priestess now God is going about the business of creating his church and making everyone who is baptized into fellowship a priest able to have access to God And we're going to need to claim this authority. What Jesus longs for is to take territory for the kingdom of God. And one of the places he wants to invade is our view of ourselves as Christian disciples. He wants to come in and say, stop compartmentalizing your life. I want to be in your home just as much as I want to be in the church or the temple. I want to be in your body. That is the place in which I dwell, within the inner sanctum, the interior castle, as St. Teresa of Avila said, that place deep down inside of you. I want that to be my dwelling place. And so God will turn our suffering into a sacrifice if we will allow him in the season and alter the way that he wants to do church. You know, when Martin Luther came to the realization of what this scripture was saying, and he made some major adjustments to create the church that we exist in today. Similarly, God moved this concept of wanting to be church even within our homes through this pandemic in a way that we had never experienced before. I'll never forget this Easter As I was practicing my Easter sermon, believe it or not, I do practice it, and I say it out loud a bunch of times, my son was sitting in the corner because our lives were on top of each other. No longer did I go to work to practice my sermon. I was practicing my sermon in my house, and that's where my son was at, and he had nothing else to do except sit there, his five-year-old self, and just watch me say half or part of the Easter sermon and talk it through. Well, eventually he decided he had seen enough. He went and got my phone, clicked it on, because five-year-olds know how to do that these days, hit record, and recorded himself giving an Easter sermon. Now, in any other season, I don't know if my son would have seen the inner workings of what it takes to be a preacher, but in this season, he saw what it needed, what the necessary ingredients were, and so he got a little access of what was going on in the church at home. And as we did communion at home and we explored questions like how can we be one body 
in communion, in unity together, and be taking communion in our various households. Perhaps God was whispering underneath all of that, yes, I want to be in your home. I want my people to realize that they are priests and priestesses in the kingdom of God and that they can serve and administer communion at their homes. You know, as a youth pastor, one of the things you learn, I got to be a youth pastor for four years and spent many years in youth ministry before that and have been around it a long time. And you can have these great experiences with students up on the mountain at camp and they will meet Jesus in real ways and have true fellowship with one another. And then the saddest part is always when you come back down the mountain and you send them off and you wonder, will this experience mark them in a way where they will keep it? And it will become a transformative experience. And one of the worries is what's being modeled at home. You see, the statistics from Barna are out about children who even are raised within the church. That by the time they turn 18 and leave their home, 60% of children raised within the church will leave the church. Now we know that that might just be a season for many, and in fact, many come back when they have children and things like that, but even that is deteriorating over time. And so it forces us to think, is there a new model? Maybe God is trying to do something new because it's not just paying the pastor or the youth pastor to do the religious work of forming young people and forming the spiritual lives or forming our spiritual lives, but that at some point we need to really step up in maturity as is being called in this passage and to crave spiritual milk and nourishment, nourishment that only God can provide, and to begin to model that in our homes and integrate our spiritual lives into our home lives. That God wants to invade every single Christian's home with the culture of heaven. And God wants to teach us how to serve our spouses and love our spouses like Christ loved the church and to love our families and to have true forgiveness and love sacrificially in a way that generates a culture at home that then can be expanded out into the world. You see, our suffering is turned into a meaningful sacrifice when we begin to take this new form and we say, this is an opportunity for me to minister to my children, for me to minister to my spouse, for me to come and make my dwelling place into a place where I commune with Jesus. If your children see you reading your scriptures, if your children see you authentically pursuing love of neighbor, 
you will not need to slam them with scripture or tell them all the things they shouldn't be doing. But instead, you will show them what it looks like to walk in the authority given by God when we bend the knee to him. And that there will be authentic culture shift within your house that your children will respond to and see the goodness of it and want to be a part of it and will shape their lives. You see, we're going to need to claim the radical declaration of the priesthood of all believers if we want to transform the culture of our home life because there is a very real enemy that wants this not to happen that would be very glad for us to keep things compartmentalized and separate and to take us out in our isolation. And to see the church continue to operate as some kind of spiritual mall that you access when you want to and as just another thing to add on your plate that's just equal to AYSO soccer or just equal to whatever uh, fun sport you want to play or just whatever hobby you have or whatever other things that you fill your life with. But no, instead, you are the church. And if you want to become the church and offer spiritual sacrifices, then there is a real force that will come against you. Stanley Hauerwas puts it this way. He says, What you are up against in being saved is not simply your petty faults and foibles, your petty temptations and peccadilloes, you are up against what we call principalities and powers. Evil is large, cosmic, organized, subtle, pervasive, and real. The powers always masquerade as freedoms that we have been graciously given as necessities that we cannot live without. Meaning that these freedoms that we think we always deserve actually serve to get in the way that You know, because we went to church, we've earned thing over here in our private life. Or we cannot live without, you know, the next greatest tool or toy. But the reality is is that what maturity as a Christian believer is, is that we learn to be nourished and sustained by God alone. So the question becomes... Will we be imitators of Christ's forgiveness in this season? Will we, or will we imitate the cruelties of the world? Will we seek to love our household and redeem our household as representatives of a new way of being? We will live differently as exiles and foreigners. We will choose not to go the path of the world, but to create a new path in our homes that represents something different. You see, Jesus loves when we come together in worship, but he also wants a beautiful corner in your home where you meet with him and where you can go and have a huddle with Jesus when things aren't going well because they will not always go well. We know that at home things are the hardest. And so that's the place where we really need 
a place where we can go and get some time with Jesus to pray and get into huddle and say, Jesus, things are not going good out there. I need your help. What's the game plan? And then go back into the game. That's a space, a beautiful space in your home that God wants to occupy. I remember a long time ago when I was a youth pastor, we did a series about dwelling with God and what part of your house do you dwell in? We need to have a space in our home where we can dwell on whatever is pure and noble and true and regroup. You see, the Eucharistic table that we have here at church where we take communion symbolizes Christ's forgiveness for us. But it isn't the only table that Jesus cares about. You see, he wants to take our uh, receiving of forgiveness through Eucharist at the Christian table here and make the table at our homes, the dining table, a place of forgiveness where we can come together with our families in fellowship and, and have this authentic truth-telling, storytelling about our day and forgive each other if we need to forgive each other and have fellowship and to serve meals to one another and to enjoy one another's company and to come together over a meal in unity. Yes, we put our Sunday best on for Easter and we get ready for the church service and we love when there's baptisms. But God also cares about each and every morning of our lives, even after long nights of worry and anxiety and suffering and anger and frustration at the way things are that seem to not be changing, and yet we choose to rise again with Christ in resurrection power. You see, Jesus is risen now just like he's risen on Easter, he's risen each and every day of our lives, even now. And so would you allow Jesus to invade your home? And may it be another reformation 500 years after Martin Luther that again brings us to the realization that we need to be the priesthood together, that is the church that God longs for and he will stop at nothing and he can use a pandemic to accomplish his purposes. Jesus is taking a risk on us. He is saying, I will make it possible for you to host my spirit within you and all you have to do is receive the forgiveness of God. And then become a part of the history of the church. Will you pray with me? Lord Jesus, I pray that you would help us to turn our suffering into a spiritual sacrifice. Holy unto you, a fragrant offering acceptable to you. Help us to live as 24-7 Christians. Move into our homes Lord, bring healing where healing needs to happen. Lord, bring forgiveness where forgiveness needs to happen. Lord, bring servitude into our houses. Bring a culture of service and love, unconditional love. And Lord, may we see your presence. May you transform us. May you 
do mighty works through us and through our households. And we conclude with the prayer of Mother Teresa. Dear Jesus, help me to spread thy fragrance everywhere I go. Flood my soul with thy spirit and love. Penetrate and, pe- and possess my whole being so utterly that all my life may only be a radiance of thine. Shine through me and be so in me that every soul I come in contact with may feel thy presence in my soul. Let them look up and see no longer me, but only Jesus. Stay with me and then I shall begin to shine as you shine. So to shine as to be a light to others. Amen.